Okay, so jumping right into it. Welcome to business school. Welcome to business school. This is a podcast where we cover recent topics and trends in consumer culture through the lens of founders, executives, investors, etc. My name is Stephen Cool. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Burrow, a direct-to-consumer furniture company. And I'm Phineas Ellis, and I am the co-founder of Stereotype Studio, a podcast production company, and have a long history of working at startups. Started my career at Warby Parker, have been a consultant for many direct-to-consumer brands, Peloton, Bonobos, many others. Today, we have a really exciting guest But before we introduce her, uh, I wanted to just do a quick intro on the topic. We're going to talk today about female founders and what's happening in the landscape of startups. There's been a number of articles that have come out about female founders and turmoil internally at their companies and different management styles. So we're going to get to that. Our guest today to talk about that is a dear friend of mine, Eva Goyokachea. She is the founder and CEO of an amazing company called Maud. I'll let her explain it, but they're a sex product company and they started a couple of years ago and she is a dear friend and I really appreciate you coming on. So welcome, Eva. Thank you so much. Yeah, what more do you want to know about sexual wellness? I want you to do, <laughs> yeah, I want you to do a quick background on yourself and Maud. Sure. Uh, Maud is two years old, like you said. We're a modern sexual wellness company. And what makes us unique and different is that we're an inclusive company, both of gender and of age. And actually, we'll talk about this later, what it's like to start a company for all people when you're a female founder. Uh, My background is I've been working since I was 14. That's a lot of years. But I really have had a career first as a legislative aide in healthcare and then about 10 years plus in consumer um, early days of Everlane, Phineas and I went through the same gamut at you know two different companies, and actually ended up becoming the head of culture <laughs> at Everlane. It was a short stint for the culture piece, but I was there for a year and a half running social media. So I've been around for a long time. You're a you're a big deal. No, I, no, I I know this for a fact because I tried to connect with you on LinkedIn today, and I had to have your email address. So that's well, like you of- know. <laughs> That you know that you made it. No, you know how many software programs there are for marketing and getting your CAC right and your email? Like I get a solicitation every single day and everybody in the company does. So there's not that many of us. They could all figure out our emails, but you know, so that's why I did that. Got okay, it, g- give, us, give us more on Mod when you started it, how big you are today, um, sure. sort of from beginning to today, where are you at? Yeah, I started working on it in 2015, and then we really launched in 2018. And I mean, you came to visit me when we were in our tiny little office. We have a bigger office now, but we're still only five full-time and a couple part-time. And then we have a C-suite that sits outside of the team. And yeah, the company's grown a lot. I mean, we've been in 500 pieces of press. We've been covered a lot. I think the one thing that doesn't get told enough is like why we exist in terms of the industry, often people take the, the route of talking about how nice the products are. So it's a really exciting space. There's a lot to do. It has a really long history. Um, and you have to be a formidable, happy person to be able to do it. And so, again, all ties back to being a female founder and what, what it, you know, sort of the pressures are when you are one. 
Yeah, I. It's an industry dominated by major players, like a lot of the yeah. companies that we respect in this in the world of consumer, direct consumer, e-commerce. There is a David versus Goliath dynamic. There is an probably out- more than any other industry. I think so, right? And, yeah. and who's who's the Goliath in this category? Trojan, for sure, at least in the U.S. And then every you know every region sort of has like Durex is really. Europe. Which is crazy because they're like the Axe body spray of sexual wellness, right? They are, but these are companies that have been around since literally 1919 or 19, yeah, 1919, I think was when the first latex condom came out. So it's a, it's a fascinating industry. And, and then on the other side of things, you have female founded brands that are female focused that they really sell toys or feminine care. And then they decided to add condoms on later. So we're kind of alone in our category in a lot of ways. But yeah, it's definitely David and Goliath. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I, I don't want to get too sidetracked on nerding out about your product and the position and the brand and the marketing and the messaging. It's, it's all, <laughs> totally. just take my word for it, it's all really innovative and really interesting and please follow the company and, and purchase from it. Next, I want to set up the topic for today. There's been a number of different articles written and Stephen and I have been having a bunch of conversations about it. I've been having a bunch of conversations about it with other contemporaries in the space and everyone's very opinionated and there's a mixture of surprise and this is completely not surprising. So it's both. So I want to start with just a clip from a Forbes piece that I read today and that I think does a a pretty decent job summing it up. Quote, in recent weeks, one high profile female founder after another stepped down. The Wings, Audrey Gelman, Refinery 29's Christine Barbaric, Brando's Jen Gotch, Reformation's Yaya Flalo, Museum of Ice Creams, Mary Ellis Bunn, Man Repellers, Leandra Medine, Girlboss's Sophia Amoroso, and now luggage company Away's co-founder and co-CEO Steph Corey will step down again. As uh, we all know, she stepped down for the first time in December 2019 and then quickly came back and now has been pushed out again, or at least is claiming that she'll step down at the end of this year. So I think just to start, as a female founder yourself in this space of startups, you're based in New York, you're a direct consumer, you've raised money from venture capital. What is your immediate reaction to this wave of stories? So I would lean on the not surprising camp. I think I, you know, on that side, again, like you, I've been in this space for a long time. And so I, I knew of these people or heard about them before they got much funding, really. And some had great reputations and some didn't. And I think there's a number of factors along the way as to why this has all happened. But some of them are not surprising. They, they didn't seem to put culture first to begin with. So, and you could say that about any founder, there's plenty of founders, male, female, otherwise. But I think in, in that case, it's really interesting, the timing of it all. But yeah, I wasn't surprised. And were you not surprised because you've been hearing stories about these people for a long time or because it's only a matter of time before the social media mob comes for people in power? No, I think it's the first one, which is that I've been hearing about these things for a long time. And then inevitably, yes, the social media, you know, people have time on their hands. They're, they're looking to figure this out. Obviously, we're in a really very strange year and there are so many dynamics at play. And if you have the pressures of, you know, in some cases like Sophia, I think she's had a reputation for being tough for a long time, but I think what's happened with her company is probably more related to COVID than anything. Whereas with others, 
there's definitely a reckoning based around what's happening sociopolitically. So it's a number of factors. Sociopolitically would suggest, though, that one of the reasons for this is because it's mostly privileged white founders, white female founders. And with that comes a level of detachment from what's happening in the world, empathy, awareness, diversity, representation at their companies. Can you speak to that a little bit in terms of what factors perpetuate those issues? Yeah. And like, what's the common thread tying all these together? Because I agree with you that these are issues like being, there's good leaders and bad leaders and bad leaders eventually hopefully get taken down. But what's the threat of like, why is it all women right now? Well, so, and I'd love to get into like, maybe putting them into different buckets, right? And I don't want to get too, I don't want to get too nerdy on this, but I would say that in some cases, uh, no, I would say in some cases, these companies were built around a type of audience that was pretty homogenous. When you look at Bandeau, or you even look at the wing, look, in full disclosure, I was a founding member of the wing. I didn't even know what I signed up for when I signed up for the wing. But just in terms of the focus was on, I'm not white, but the focus was on, you know, a particular type of woman and, you know, in a particular place in her life with the means to do it. And then I think in Bandeau's case, they rallied around this sort of millennial pink vision. And it, I think behind the scenes is really what made it unravel. But if you think about who they were going after anyway, it was a very particular type of person. And so it feels exclusive. It feels like that's how they started the business, even if that wasn't their intention. So are you saying that, especially in in these circumstances in the age of the Black Lives Matter movement, right, has heightened scrutiny on companies to be more progressive and inclusive? Completely, as they should be. Yeah. But I would say that the nature of each of these businesses in some cases, while no one wants to say it, they are exclusive and they shouldn't be. I'm not saying they should be. I just think that nobody wanted to talk about that. It was fine for Bandeau to sort of operate. And again, like Maud's products are in Bandeau. Do I support what they were doing? Absolutely not. I sent them a letter after all of this came out. But I've known of Jen Gotch for many, many years back when I lived in LA. And this was like, this is sort of, I think this is like what they were building. It was kind of faux feminism. And then here real issues come to the surface because the world isn't isn't having it anymore. And so who does the responsibility fall on? It's not the consumer to say you need to do better. It's I absolutely believe it's the founder that needs to do better and they should have done better from the beginning. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And because there are there were a lot of racial undertones to a lot of these stories of perpetuating a culture that was not inclusive and borderline racist. And so that's not surprising to hear where that all came from, where it stemmed from. Yeah, and I think there's there's a couple issues at hand because this is not the same for a way, right? Like you look at the companies like Bandeau and The Wing and this faux feminism stuff and and we could go on and on about who it's for. Then you look at just complete companies that have nothing to do with feminism, quote unquote, but culturally speaking, they haven't tried to build companies that were fair and inclusive and equal, or it wasn't a priority, or maybe they grew too fast. So it's kind of a lot of, a lot of different situations happening. And then the common thread is these female founders who, you know, get taken down. Should they get taken down at the way that they have? I'm not sure. I think there are plenty of male founders who are just as awful, but the expectation is on women typically to do better. Yeah, let's let's talk about that. As a founder, I know how much pressure there is to succeed, right? Especially as you take on venture capital, whether it is explicit or implicit pressure 
you feel like you have to succeed at all costs. But what I can't comment on and what we'd love to hear your opinion on is what is the extra pressure in being female? Well, so it's interesting. There was actually a study done by the American Psychological Association about the perception we have of female CEOs versus male and how we are more likely to be more forgiving of women in some cases and less forgiving in others. And we expect different things. So with women, we expect that they're honest. We expect that they're going to be empathetic. We expect that they're going to care about your feelings and that they're going to build companies accordingly. And consumers are really okay with them if they screw up, if they admit that they screwed up and it was not the intention. They're harder on men. However, in reverse, if the woman, if, if there's some sort of, you know, malicious behavior, if that's the perception of the consumer, then women are taken down much faster. And I think that is the case here, whether or not they were malicious, irresponsible. I could argue for the fact that I think most of them have been irresponsible, but so that I knew that going in as a female founder, like I was supposed to have feelings. Now I study organizational communication and I just happen to care about people and I care about culture and feelings, but just because you're a woman doesn't mean you have an EQ. Right. And it's also just, um, it takes a lot of work to build a culture, like a, a high performing inclusive culture in an organization. It's not something that just happens because you are a man or a woman or whatever, right? Like it takes work no matter who you are. And it takes surrounding yourself with, with people who know how to do it and just admitting that you don't. I think maybe what's happening here as well, it's making it worse that they can't admit that they don't know because you're supposed to know and because the pressure is on you. And if you're in this, you know, women raise what, 2.7% of venture funding. So if you're in that camp and then you're one of the only 134 unicorn companies in the US that are female founded or whatever, like it's, there's a lot of pressure on you. Yeah. What are, what are some of the other challenges? I know I, I've heard you talk about in the past on other podcasts about in fundraising, and this is more, I attribute this more to be like an authentic person than anything else, but not being as willing to make a super overly confident, bold claim <laughs> to investors to get them to write you a check. What is that like? And like, what's going through your head when you're in the meeting, you're thinking that, how does that manifest? The interesting thing is this actually comes down to how much I judge them in reverse. If I'm going to say bullshit in order to get a check, then I don't respect them anyway. So have I had a hard time fundraising? Sure. Am I in like a small group of women, especially obviously like Latino women don't raise much money, um, who've raised money and done it. I've done it three times. Like, yeah, it's hard. I feel, <laughs> I feel often like maybe I should be blowing smoke up people's, you know, what's, but I think for me, it's more about I don't know what this is, and I don't think this is the case for what the companies that we're talking about, but I am really into under-promising and over-delivering. There is something so satisfying about being not taken seriously, and just you turn around and you're like, here you go. I did it better. I did it faster. I did it more efficiently. And that's kind of how I operate. Um, so I sort of use being underestimated as a female to do my job. That's incredibly respectable, by the way. I envy your ability to, to do that. <laughs> I, I am like the poster child. We can ask all our investors of over-promising and under-delivering. Um, I couldn't do it. I don't know. We'll have to talk about that offline. But yeah. <laughs> but I do want to talk about uh, something there, you know, on, on our first episode, we had Dave Silvant, who's the co-founder and president of Squire, which is like open table for barbershops. And he talked about how as, as a black founder in the early stages of his business, VCs, they just didn't take the time to double click into a business that was part of a culture that they didn't understand. I would bet any amount of money that you experienced something similar to that. Can you talk about that? 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, well, I said this at the beginning, but I walk into a room and they think that I'm automatically, that I have a sex toy company, number one, or they think that it's for women, which doesn't make any sense. Women don't buy condoms, guys. Like, it's yeah. a sexual wellness Dave said company. all their barbershops, they assume they're all black. It's very similar. Very similar. Yeah, and I'm like, this is just, we're trying to be the next Trojan. So once you say that, they understand. Obviously, it's a very legacy industry that we're all used to in terms of being on the drugstore aisle, but they automatically assume it's for women because I'm a woman founder. Has it gotten easier since you raised your initial few rounds of funding? Are you now going back to existing investors or are you finding that it's equally challenging to raise additional money? Well, try raising before COVID and then during COVID, which I'm in the middle of raising now. So no, it's not easier. And then also, and this is not a conversation about growth versus profitability, but that is the biggest issue is that we have not dumped money into stupid places. So there you go. Yeah, I know. I've been resisting the urge to ask you a growth versus profitability question because <laughs> that was our last episode. But I do want to ask it really quickly, which is, do you think that there's a different route you could have taken to get where you are today? And if you had listened to, like when you came into this landscape, I remember when we first met, you were a few months away from launching your company. And that was an era when rapid growth, spend a lot of money online inefficiently. You came into this space and was that a decision that you made to go towards profitability and slower growth? Or was that door not open to you as a founder to take? And if it was open to you, would you have taken it? Okay, well, this is a good question because it actually segues back into the topic of the conversation at hand. So first of all, there's a lot of pattern matching, as we know, when you're raising money. They're looking for a certain pedigree, what school you went to, et cetera. I don't really fit the profile of most of those things. So I knew that raising money was going to be hard for me. Then I was in a stigmatized industry and I'm a female founder and I'm under 40. I'm not a 65 year old male raising money. And, you know, if you look at the CEOs of these condom companies, they're all grandfathers, really. So I didn't have that choice, but I needed to raise money to get it off the ground because it's just an enormous amount of product that you have to order. And the way that this segues into everything is I think this profile of most of the founders we've been talking about are sort of the female founders that have been taken down, if you will, fit a certain profile. And whether it's the networks that they have or where they came from, who they know, there's a lot of expectation on their shoulders. And I actually don't think that the VCs probably ever ask the question, who are you? Why are you starting this? Why do you care? They were like, I'm going to give you money. I think you can do it. You've been in network and, and you go from there. I think that's the case for most people who successfully raise money is they probably have those things in place and it's easier for them. But um, which then leads to what I was going to say was if nobody asked the questions around culture, which they always asked me about, here's where you end up with companies that are having culture problems. So, But even if they do ask, how are they going to know? I think confident, well, you- privileged people are pretty good at just saying the right answer, right? Like, Oh yeah, I believe in culture. Like it's easy to say the right things too. And oh, I, you could say the right things, but I don't actually think that's a requisite. I don't think that that's a prerequisite. I don't think that they're looking for that anyway. I don't think investors who pour a hundred million dollars into a luggage company care about if they're investing in nice people or not. You know, that's not really their interest. In fact, it's better if they invest in not so nice people because they'll do what it takes to get to where they need to go. And that's something that we don't really want to talk about in general. We've sort of turned this into like a male or female dynamic, but I don't think that some of these founders are so far off from WeWork in a lot of ways. Or Uber. Or Uber. 
Actually, you're, you're touching on something that I, th I think is super interesting. Uh, I forget where I read it. There was a piece about some of these founders, male and female, that are the most classic definition of a narcissist. And if you know the mythology behind it, a narcissist drowns themselves. They throw it all away. They destroy it by staring in, the, in their own reflection. They get so hung up on their own success. In a lot of these companies, the identity of the brand is so tied to who that founder is. And so they almost conflate the company's success to become their own success. And then they're a, a celebrity as a result of it. And it creates this incredibly toxic, unhealthy cycle and creates a huge disconnect between them and their employees who see them out in the road all the time, right. speaking on panels, right? And then they come back and they're like yelling at them, like, why can't you grow faster? And the employees are like, you're not doing anything. Who are you? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think there's that, but it would. I would also then say that investors, and you know this just as well as I do, they want to see a lot of that peacocking because that's signaling that the company is doing well and that it's, I was going to almost say doing things, but kidding. Um, and I think that that's the catch, right? Is like you have to pacify all of these shareholders, all these people that are invested in your company, and you can't, I don't know that it's that easy to, to please everyone. You would have had to yeah, start at the very beginning and do what I said, which was in reverse, look at that person and say, I don't want your money if you are going to make me be a terrible person. No, it, I, I do think you're right. It is perpetuated in some way by some of the money that flows into the companies, for sure. And the thing that investors won't ever publicly talk about is with, when they see people like that, they are thinking the ends justify the means and I'm making a bet that I can get out before this person blows up the company, right? Correct. And if yep. it, like in the case of WeWork and Uber, Benchmark got out. Like Benchmark made a lot of money off of both of those companies prior to the CEOs blowing up. Right. They got what they wanted, right? And then who, who pays the consequence is everybody else around them. Yeah. And so I think that's one major factor here is just the amount of pressure when you're overcapitalized and you're expected to do something. And I agree with you, like there's not an alignment between founders and VCs. Well, sometimes there is an alignment, which is everyone's going to get what they want, <laughs> which is money. But so that's one thing. I think on the female founder thing, on the other side of it, which really I think scares me the most about the VC world in general, and I've said this to many people, these are the conversations I've been having, is everybody's complete and utter lack of knowledge around employment law. And like just the basics of how you run a business and what that means in terms of your accountability, liability, et cetera. Because that's what's come out that's really fascinating. I, I'm, I am sure there are plenty of male founders who have businesses where they've completely gone after their employees on Slack. But it, it's, I, I kind of just want to say, who's running the show here? You have $100 million. Like call an HR person. What's going on? I don't know. You, you made a good point earlier just about how the culture as a whole perpetuates the activity and the actions and the irresponsibility in a lot of cases of these operators, of these owners, of these founders, men and women alike. I wanted to speak to that. One term I've been reading a lot over the last few weeks is the term girl boss, right? Which Sofia Amoroso coined, obviously. And I'm wondering just for your reaction to that term as it's being portrayed in the media today and where you see yourself fitting in that world. Do you identify as that? And the other point, which is sort of the same point, is one of the major 
through lines that I'm seeing here is that what we do in startup culture is people at the top group up. They create yep. sort of like a identity click in a lot of ways. And within that group, actions and decision-making start to look similar and irresponsible in similar ways. And so I'm drawing a line, not very eloquently from girl boss to that. And so I just want your reaction to that as a culture in startups. Okay. So on the, the first question, I don't identify with girl boss at all because I actually think that it is the undertone, really the subtext is all women are the same. And it also infantilizes women, like calling them a girl infantilizes them. I could go on and on about the fact that sex toys get called sex toys. The vibe is not a sex toy. So to me, as a almost 38, almost 40 year old person, I don't want to be identified as a girl boss that said, I think what's come out of some of these organizations, just the access to more information and for women to feel like they can take ownership of their career in ways, that's great. That's all great. The problem is that when there's that big disconnect between really how they're pigeonholing women, what that essentially does to women in terms of how it makes them feel is I think there's just a lot to be unpacked there. And who really has the power? It's the person, it's the Sophia. It's not everybody else. It's the Sophia, right? There's one girl boss, which leads to the second point, which is I think women are typically sort of told that there's only one seat for a woman at the table or that they should be mean to one another. There's a lot of competition. That's how we're raised is to be competitive and to not be kind. And I think that perpetuates it. When you have these female, you know, they're really primarily female-led organizations with female employees and, fem you know, what happens is it becomes homogenous. And that in and of itself takes women back. That was really well said. It is very well said. Yeah. I have a follow-up and uh, I think we're going to wrap here shortly, but my follow-up is sort of doubling down on this, this point that I'm sort of trying to get to, which is why do you think that when Away and Outdoor Voices and a number of these other businesses have started to experience some turmoil. Why do you think there were so many people that weren't standing up for them in the public that weren't saying, wow, this is so shocking. Why do you think there were so many people that were excited to see them experience this troubling time? So I don't know some of these people, so I don't know, but I will say that what I've heard is that many of them started out with this kind of temperament, if you will. Like this was, this was the case when they were four people versus a hundred versus like, and look, I came from Everlane. You go on and on about that. Sorry, Michael. But like there, it starts, it starts with the person. If they're just, if it's a team of two, the issues are already there. Could be a little seed, but it's, you know, it's going to be a giant tree that falls down at some point. And so that's why I think people are saying that. It's not, and that's not the case maybe for everybody. Maybe other people are happy to see failure or they think that, you know, maybe there is some level of frustration with the lack of access to funds or whatever. And you see some of these companies raising so much money, whatever the case is. But at least from what I've heard, it's a lot of, well, yes, that's kind of, we knew that that was the personality to begin with. So we went into this episode not knowing exactly what the common thread was. And we also didn't want to be 
two white guys figuring it out and then <laughs> saying it, right? So you did it really eloquently. The, the creation of homogenous culture uh, within these companies that all have the common thread of the similar backgrounds that the founders come from, it makes total sense. The one thing to remember is that I believe that it really starts with surrounding yourself with better people. Like, look, if you're interested in your bottom line, then you should actually surround yourself with good people in the beginning. Even if you're a shitty narcissist, you should surround yourself with good people because the actual real costs of unhappy companies is there and you end up losing whatever you are interested in to begin with. So I think that's what's going to come out of this. It's like, yes, women are scrutinized heavier, but overall, we all need to be aware of the fact that you have to start early in making sure that these are healthy companies. Yeah, that was going to be my final, one of my final questions was, what advice do you have for other entrepreneurs that are starting out, that are starting companies that are female and sounds like surrounding yourself with good people and a diverse base of, of voices and perspectives is on top of the list, which is interesting because that's a similar theme to what we had on the episode with Dave. Just, you know, Stephen made a really, I think a really eloquent point. Everyone go back and listen to that episode. He made a really eloquent point to close out the episode, which was that it matters much more making a decision to be inclusive and hire a diverse team early on because if you have, you know, if you're two co-founders and you're both men and then your first hire is a woman, you just increased your diversity and your perspective, you know, by 33 and a third percent, right? Versus if you're already 50 people and then you add a diverse voice or perspective, it really is a drop in the bucket. Yeah. And I think that's what I think is an oversight for a lot of these founders is if you really do pay attention to the small things, if you really do pay attention to every you know staff member or you assign it out so that there is like a real working organization, it will end up just benefiting everybody. There's just no reason why these companies have to be toxic. And there's no reason why, you know, this entire group of female founders is getting taken down because nobody asked them to do better from the beginning. Like they, it has now sent us all back, like I said earlier. And that's unfortunate, you know? We need leaders. We need really great female leaders. And this is, it's a disappointment. Yeah, it's so true. It's, it's been proven like decades ago, which teams do best. And if you look at all these different models for how to build a team and culture, the ones where everybody is, I mean, number one, diverse. And then two, everyone's bought into a common theme right. and mission, right? Those companies do the best. It's funny, the failure rate of those companies is actually like less than 1%. It's, well, it's crazy. People just like, they, they want to be with each other and they want to build something together and they respect each other and they're just all bought in. And like that works. And I think what's happening, like you're saying, is like, these companies are all focused on growth at all costs to start. They're like, we'll figure out culture's easy, diversity, inclusion, like that's easy. Like we'll get there. Like the hard part is getting scale and growth and we'll figure it out later. And what you're finding is like, it's not easy to do. In fact, the longer you wait, the harder it becomes and it can actually sink your company. It can sink your company. And I also think that it's like, it creates this inefficiency, like if you don't have clear communication, if you don't have boundaries, if you don't have rules, if you don't have like, stop slacking. I mean, look, our team of five talks all day, every day because we like each other, but like truly stop slacking people and berating them at one in the morning. Like people have to sleep. I was reading an interesting fact when I was thinking about this conversation 
550 million workdays are lost each year due to stress on the job, and $500 billion is siphoned off from the US economy because of workplace stress. Yeah, so it's like, this is real. So behaving this way, again, now it might go back to we've infantilized women and we think that they should be mean girls and that's okay and we thought it was cool on the way up, but like, here we are, there's a real cost. And what's happened to all that furniture at the wing? Like, what about all of those people that worked there? It's like everything from the physical space to the real human cost, it's all for nothing because somebody didn't say this is the wrong way to do things. And I don't know anything about the wing internally, so I don't want to say I'm just using them as an example. But that's when you think about really like the repercussions. It's just amazing. Yeah, the cost is significant and not always appreciated. The cost of, of this management style is very human. And then even more than that, it's the whole company and all of the assets and all of the value and all of the all of the positivity, especially created by a company like The Wing, which I think when, when they came out, we all celebrated and cheered in a lot of ways for a lot of reasons. And it undermines all of those things, unfortunately. Yeah, they, they just leave a, a wake of destruction and it's that needs to be considered up front. Yeah. Well, and I wanted to ask you guys a question because I think that I was trying to think of examples of male-led companies where they lead with, first of all, they can't be leading with male power. Okay, that's out the window. But like they, they <laughs> that actually they lead by, wait, they wait. lead. Do you know what country we're in? I mean, really, truly, I know. But I'm saying, what are the companies where they've led with this sort of, this vision of inclusivity, for instance. That's the issue is like if you have these companies that were specifically built to lift up women who aren't, well, the fall's greater. A great point. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic because no, but I guess the only example that I can see is like Adam and WeWork because he was trying to build something quote unquote meaningful. Like what other guys do you know that are like, I care about people and I'm building an organization? Patagonia. It's such a great point for this reason because the fall is greater because of what they promoted themselves to be. And one of the reasons that we don't scrutinize some of these other companies, male-led or female-led, is that they weren't telling us that they were representing something more, something greater, something important, something social. Exactly. They were just selling us a product. Right. And I made this point before you came on and I referenced Burrow during the Black Lives Matter movement. And I applauded Stephen for how he handled it because he didn't overhandle it and he didn't underhandle it. Right. They spoke to it, but then also recognized that they sell furniture. Yeah. We wanted to be authentic with it. Like, this is where we stand. We want to let, it, want to let everybody know where we stand. And, but ultimately, like, nobody's looking to us to defeat racism we can do our part and we should do our part, but let's be realistic about what our part is and then let's do it well and then shut up about it. Well, and I would say Everlane's having just as much scrutiny as the wing. And maybe we should have gone into this conversation going, okay, well, you asked me this and I didn't answer it this way, but what is the common thread? The common thread is that they're standing for something, most of them, except for maybe a way. They're standing in the movement, they're standing for this thing. And that's where the downfall happens. But that is happening at Everlane and it is led by a man. There's just not a lot of examples on that side of things. It Hopefully out of all of this, we will ask ourselves, like, how do we build better cultures? Even if for you, the outcome might be, I just want a better bottom line. And for someone else, it might just be, I want a happier workday. It doesn't matter. I'm hoping that this whole conversation changes. 
in some ways we ask our companies to stand for something greater and then tear them down when they don't live up to our expectations of that. Well, these are pretty egregious. Like These are egregious examples, but if we look at the culture and we zoom out a little bit away from this particular moment, we look at companies that are do-good companies. We're going to touch on this in other episodes and we've already gone past it, but we look at companies that market themselves as giving back and the whole for-profit company doing good has its own challenges and issues. But to your point earlier, which I thought was really interesting and I've actually never thought about is it really matters how they speak about it and how loudly they claim to be what they are. And so you can be a company that does good things and stands for positive change and stands for social issues and stands for inclusivity, whatever your mission is, sustainability. It's just about how loudly you claim to be an authority on the subject, how much of your credibility you stamp on that. What is radical transparency? If you build your whole business on radical transparency, people are going to look radically at your supply chain all the time, forever, because you're asking them to. And so you better be willing to stand on that. And that's a really interesting thing as founders continue to be innovators from a marketing perspective. What's my competitive advantage? What's my unique position in the market? And how am I unique? And it's no wonder that people are looking to all sorts of different claims to fame in order to stand out. But it matters which one you choose. It matters how authentic it is to who you are as a leader. And it matters how you build your company around that ideal. Absolutely. And I think that the conversation around female leaders is that we need to allow women to be many things and we need to recognize there's a diversity with women. And for these organizations that are built to be catch-alls, that is actually the problem. You cannot represent all women. And if you are supposed to be a community, you have to let the community build itself. It can't be the founder's show really has to be of the people. So I would say not all women wear pink, not all women are the same, and God damn it, it's too bad that we continually get lumped into, <laughs> you know, to one bucket, but hopefully out of this we'll see that. And I think these examples are, I guess the unfortunate part of how they're being covered is that it's also lumping them all in because there are very different things happening here. And can I just say, there is a tremendous amount of pressure put on companies in our space to have some sort of social mission. And, mm-hmm. and I, I, I've had conversations with people, some VCs, some just you know people, and they're like, what is your social, what's your social impact gonna be? And like, how are you guys gonna focus on that? And it's like, some of the things are just, should be inherent to wh- what our mission is. And if our mission is to build innovative furniture that makes it more convenient for consumers, like the way that we're gonna have a social impact is by reducing waste in the furniture industry and and creating more sustainable supply chain, right? But that doesn't have to be part of like our messaging to the world. Like you can just do good and have that be part of what you do. Like a lot of those things should be table stakes. I don't want to have an inauthentic message of like, oh, we're, we're saving the world by making innovative furniture or some bold bullshit claim like that. Which a lot of companies do. And I think there's pressure on people to do that. And I think that's contributing to exactly what you're talking about, Eva. Well, Totally. I mean, I would say, you know, I've used this example before. I somehow stumbled. I lived downtown in downtown LA 
really early. Like I just always do this. I'm always too early to everything and late in real life. I don't know what's happening anyway. Um, and I was a member of the Los Angeles Athletic Club. And I remember thinking, oh, this is cool because it has so much history that you can sort of go there and you just buy in as a younger person to like the history enough to be like, this is what a social club does, or this is what an athletic club does. I think with the wing, especially, they were trying to expedite time. They were trying to like expedite creating community in an authentic and real way. And you're right, it's all kind of silly because it's not, that's not how these things really work. I think the, the reality is like happiness has to be authentic. Actually, what you're doing is creating happiness for people. So you should recognize that's your social impact because most, I mean, happiness at this point is like hard to find <laughs> for some people in this COVID era. But I think my whole point is you cannot fabricate the things that really should take a longer period of time or really have to be born from, from people being interested in it. And so you can't fabricate your mission. You should just be able to own it and say like, the people that buy our furniture really like it and they're happier because of it. And the wing provides a space for people to get a great cup of coffee and meet new friends. But like, we don't have to be all the things at once. Over time, we will. That's not really in line with the VC world. So let's be honest. And I think that reconciliation has to happen at the founder level. And you have to be able to wake up every day and be like, if I made somebody happier today, and this shit goes to hell, like, I'm still okay with it. Okay, let's do the post game. That was fascinating. Yeah, she's a female founder who's in this space and has gone through a lot of the same struggles as a lot of the people in the news, but just has a really different perspective on it and clearly doesn't identify as part of it. I thought that was really interesting when we asked her about being a girl boss, her perspective on that I thought was really illuminating and surprising in a lot of ways. Yeah, she did such a great job of, I mean, she solved the riddle for us. What is the common thread tying this together? These are a group of people who in some way, shape or form are wealthier, a little bit more privileged, perhaps a little out of touch with reality. Uh, many of them are narcissists and they got a lot of funding and they were kind of given free reign to build the company however they wanted to. And because they were able to scale quickly and they put themselves at the front of the company as the face of the company, they became celebrities. And then the, the company's success became their success. And it just got to this point where it was inevitable that it was going to come crashing down. That is not a recipe for success. And so there's a common thread of where these people are coming from. And the fact that they are female founders helps elevate them as well. That icon, like that's, unfortunately, that's a novel thing in, in our society. It shouldn't be, but it, but it is. And so that adds to this like intrigue behind who is this person that started this high growth company. And then that if these are people that never invested early on in building a, a strong culture um, within their organizations with good people, it was destined to fail. And a lot of them are just all coming to a head right now. And, you know, a lot of it is there were, you know, racial undertones because of the homogenous nature of how their companies were built is going to highlight a lack of diversity, which is coming to light in recent months. Yeah. I think one of the really interesting things about our conversation and what's happening is how the culture of startups has informed how these founders run their companies, the behavior that it justifies and encourages 
and from that behavior, how the wider American culture of our tendency to put people on pedestals and make heroes of people in positions of power, people that have built something from the ground up very quickly, very American dream. But then once they get to the mountaintop and they are operating their company in the same way that the culture of startups has encouraged them to run it, it puts them in a position where the employees, the consumers, the wider media culture is eager almost to tear them down. And so it is this double-edged sword of we facilitate and encourage them to become these icons. And then when they start to act like power-obsessed dictatorial leaders and develop this level of hubris that they can do no wrong and they've never really been held accountable for having dissenting voices, having a diverse team, then now that they're on the mountaintop, they are perfect targets to be taken down because of the very thing that we told them to do to get there. And so, yes, if you look at any one of these individual examples of these founders that run these companies, there are egregious things that have happened objectively that are problematic and you know, there's a reckoning. But when we zoom out and look at the wider culture, it's a lot more complicated than that. Yeah, and it, it, they didn't do themselves any favors by waving these these flags like we stand for feminism, um, when in reality they weren't practicing it themselves. Or I stand for sustainability and doing good, but I don't practice that internally with my own company. And people, I think the public and ex employees can smell through and see the bullshit. And, and that's also why people were kind of rooting for some of these companies to have this day, the reckoning. Yeah. I mean, the elephant in the room with Away, certainly, and, and in full transparency, both of those founders are, are acquaintances or friends on some level, at least. And so this isn't a personal attack or this isn't personal towards them at all. But the elephant in the room with Away is certainly that for whatever reason, for a myriad of reasons, when the turmoil started back in December of 2019, there was a lot of people that were saying, oh yeah, that's not surprising, or almost even celebrating the turmoil that was happening internally and reveling in it to some degree. And I think Eva spoke to that a little bit as to why that would be the case. But you know, we do have a certain, I, I want to reiterate this point of we do have a tendency in the, in the culture of startups of making icons out of founders, overcapitalizing them, and then expecting them to be something that they're not. Expecting them to be moral leaders or cultural leaders or perfect managers of people. We should hold these people accountable, yes, but it's just gotten totally out of hand and crazy that now when a founder is being a bad manager, it's coming out in the New York Times and being covered by all of these other media outlets. It just goes to show that how problematic this sort of pop culturization of startups has become. Yeah. And, and, and you're right. Like the media, the public, definitely the venture community, all guilty here as it relates to the situation. If you give anybody millions and millions of dollars and you put them on stages to speak on panels in front of 
hundreds or thousands of people all the time. You put them in the New York Times, you put them on TV. How do you not develop an ego? And many of these people, I think you're hearing about it, like they had an ego before they got into their companies that they started. And then they have a bigger one after that. And they start to think of themselves as these true visionaries. And you hear all these people comparing themselves to Steve Jobs or Michael Jordan. You know, you watch the documentary and you're like, oh yeah, they were assholes to their employees early on um, or their teammates. And, but that pushed them for greatness. And, but they're these visionaries that are going to build this like great future. And so they're going to be hard on people, but it's not being an asshole. It's just being tough and pushing people to their limits in order to, to achieve greatness. And the reality is they're not like we as an, as a society, have given them free reign to act like that before it's necessarily been earned. And I think that contributes to that massively, like you're saying. Yeah. And I think that there are a lot of different factors at play here that we are maybe not speaking to directly, but this show is about startup culture. And so what we're really putting our finger on here is how startup culture perpetuates this behavior and how those two things are related. There's obviously a lot of other things at play and we're not speaking to them. And the biggest one being the fact that there are women and sexism in the culture of startups is obviously a thing. And I think we had Eva on to speak to that point, And I think she did a great job of it. But in this portion of the show, we haven't been speaking to it because that's not something that we have a great perspective on, or at least a lot of insight into necessarily. Absolutely. Neither of us is qualified to speak about what it's like to be a female founder or a woman working in a startup. It is our responsibility as founders, no matter who you are, to create an inclusive environment for all your employees so that nobody feels pressure, or at least you can eliminate as much of that pressure as possible on people based on their gender, race, background, et cetera. That's our responsibility to do. And what we're seeing in all of these cases are founders who did not do that. Ultimately, they failed to build a safe and inclusive and and efficient culture. They just haven't done it. And that's why they're being kicked out of their own companies that they founded. And it's, it's justified. Is it all their fault? No, it's not. There's an environment that has created this path for them to get there. But ultimately, who's responsible for something when it fails? The person at the top. So that's why they're being taken down. Yeah. Okay. That was a really good episode. And, um, Thank you again to Eva. Everyone go buy products from Maud. Her company's really cool. And I, uh, I'm i not trying to put her on a pedestal and I'm not trying to make a hero out of her. She's just the CEO of a company, but uh, her products are great. And so go take a look at that. The website's getmod.com. We'll put that in the description of the show. Thank you, Stephen. That was a great episode. Thanks, Phineas. Class dismissed. Class dismissed. wondering how you could support this show, the best thing you can do is subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. Hit the subscribe button so you'll be notified when we come out with a new episode.